Uh, did want to just reiterate something that Bob said about tomorrow night. Uh, boy, April really was, when we had our first prayer and praise, a tremendous blessing uh, to the elders, to those who were here. And I really hope and pray that that becomes part of our identity, that we come together routinely uh, as a church family. There's no theatrics. It's not a performance. It's just time together as brothers and sisters in Christ going before the Lord with things that are of great significance in His kingdom plan. And uh, so I urge you to be a part of uh, that time tomorrow night. Uh, I feel certain you won't regret it. So so school's out. You excited about that? Summer's finally here, right? Uh, as Bob mentioned, we sent the kids off to camp and they're going to have a great week. I look forward to all the stories of uh, the things that happen over the week and uh, know that God will definitely use that in their lives. Now, I realize it's probably too soon to, to ask a question like this uh, for those of you who've been in school over the past year. But at some point in time, I want to encourage you to stop for a moment. Uh, Dexter, you guys can probably uh, relate to this. Stop for a moment and uh, consider what it would have been like to take some of the things you learned at the end of the year and imagine how difficult it would have been to have understood those same things at the beginning of the year. Because, as you know, teachers understand how to build one concept on another. And they don't automatically dive into the hard stuff because there's some fundamentals that you need to learn along the way that are necessary to help make those difficult things understandable. Is that right? The same thing's true in a lot of areas of life. Uh, I mentioned to you that I coach Grant's uh, Little League baseball team. And he can, uh, and Lance helps out with that, and we have a great time with these kids. But on day one, we don't pull out bats, we don't pull out gloves. All we do is talk about some of the fundamentals of baseball, and just how you stance, and what it looks like, and what it feels like to to throw the ball, just going through the motions. We have a little drill called the the wicket drill, and what I do with that is I hit a ground ball, and they have to run over to get in front of it, spread their legs like a like when you're playing croquet croquet a little wicket put your hands down and then lift your hands up so the ball goes between their legs and all i want them to know is get them to feel what it's like to get in front of the ball and see that ball go right there so that then when we put on gloves they get their gloves out in front and they're in position to catch the ball okay so it's the same concept they're learning these things and i'm telling you this is the time of season we're getting to the end of the baseball season and they have begun to put these concepts together and they're hitting the ball and they're catching the ball and it's fun isn't it lance to see how well they uh, are learning the game of baseball the reason i tell you that is because i believe that these same principles of building one concept upon the other are, are essential to understanding uh, the study that we've gone through and looking at the miracles of jesus See, Jesus didn't expect everyone to understand the full magnitude of who he is on day one. Instead, each miracle builds on the previous miracle, resulting in a, a progressive revelation and a growing understanding of who he is. And all along the way, it says that people believed. When we looked at the wedding of Cana, it said that the disciples saw it and they believed. When we talked about the woman at the well, the woman from Samaria, how she and all the people, many in that city, uh, believed in Jesus and, and they went on to say that they believed that he was the Savior of the world. We saw the same thing with the royal official. He and his household 
believed. The blind man believed. Now, I understand these to be genuine confessions of faith, even in the midst of really what was at that time an incomplete understanding of who Jesus was. But in his grace, Jesus continues to lead those who believe toward a a deeper understanding of who he is to the point of, of a culminating miracle that we will look at today. See, what Jesus reveals with the miracle with Lazarus is the pinnacle of his signs and wonders. To the point that Scripture says that Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. In other words, this is it. This is the final miracle leading up to and even foreshadowing the very most important miracle of all. And that's what we get a chance to look at together this morning. So before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we ask that you perform yet another miracle this morning by allowing our hearts to be sensitive to the work of your spirit, to see, to know, to believe in what is true, to be transformed by the power of your spirit working within us, that your truth really would produce new life. That is our heart and our prayer as we come before you this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to do is highlight a comment that I made last week when I talked about the growing division that continues among those who encounter Jesus. And I want to show you a little bit more in detail of what I mean by that. If you would, turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7, verse 12. This is one of the first times that we see this uh, being communicated, but you'll see how they kind of begin to fall real close to one another. Beginning in verse 12, it says, And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No. On the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. So here we have kind of a a behind-the-scenes, under-your-breath conversation. It wasn't really public. It was more private. And it's fairly benign. Some thought he was a good man. Some thought he was leading others astray. But look at how it progresses. Turn to verse 40. Verse 40, it says, Some of the multitude, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, now publicly, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the scriptures said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So again, there arose a division in the multitude because of him. Now, in this one, you see that what was now, what was first a a private conversation becomes more public. And what was initially benign becomes more progressive. He's the prophet. He's the Christ. No, yet that can't be true. And then it progresses into a conversation among the religious leaders. Turn to chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 16. We looked at this one in the man born blind last week. It says, therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And again. 
There was a division among them. So that division is now moved into the religious leaders. And they have this quandary as well as, who is this man? That some says, well, he can't be from God because he breaks the Sabbath. And the others are saying, look, we all know about the miracle of a man being healed who was born blind. That is a divine prerogative. A sinner can't do that. So who is he? Now look at chapter 10, verse 19. It continues to progress. Chapter 10, verse 19 says, There arose a division again among the Jews because of these words. And many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not sayings of one who's demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of a blind man, can he? Do you see the escalation? Uh, of not just the opinions, but the emotions attached to those opinions. You see, for those who opposed Jesus, it, it wasn't because they misunderstood what he was saying. They understood what he was saying. They just didn't believe that it was true. If you'll remember, after healing the, the man at the pool of Bethesda, they said, as we've read, this, can't, this man, can't Jesus can't be from God because he... Healed on the Sabbath. Jesus responds by saying that, listen, I'm doing exactly what my father is doing. And they said, whoa, 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 wait a second. You can't say that because you're making yourself out to be equal with God. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. They understood. They just didn't believe it was true. So strong was their opposition that on at least two occasions they picked up rocks to stone Jesus, to kill him. We looked at one of those when Jesus is visiting with the disciples after one of his miracles, and and they're claiming to be accepted by God because of their lineage to Abraham. Abraham is our father. And therefore, since God accepted Abraham, he accepts all those who fall into that lineage. And Jesus tells them, listen, if Abraham was your father, you would be a man of faith and believe as he did but you don't believe that I am from God, and so you can't trust God. And this was a hard conversation because Jesus in this goes on to say, in fact, your father is the devil (laughs) because you're believing a lie and not accepting what I'm telling you is true. He goes on in that conversation to say that, that Abraham, even Abraham, looked and saw the day that the Messiah would come. He saw me. And he rejoiced in that day. And they said, wait, wait, wait a second. That can't be. You're not more than 50 years old. And he said, before Abraham was, I am. And immediately they picked up rocks to stone him because they understood what he was saying. That I and the Father are one. And that's precisely the next time that it happens. They come to Jesus and they're getting more and more candid. And in fact, they in chapter 10, they go and they say, Tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And in response, Jesus essentially tells them, I've answered that question. I've told you who I am. And, and he goes on to say, I and the Father are one. Look at chapter 10, verse 30. Let's just look at that together. Chapter 10, verse 30. It says, I... And the Father are one. That's how he answered their question. The Jews knew what he said. And so what did they do? They took up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them. He says, I showed you many good works 
from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For the good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. You see, they understood what Jesus was saying. They just didn't believe that it was true. Jesus is telling them that he is sent by God. That he does nothing on his own accord. That he eternally existed. And that he and the Father are one. They are getting what Jesus is saying. They simply don't believe that is true. Now, on the other hand, you have those who do believe what Jesus says is true. As we talked about, you have the disciples. It says the wedding of Cana, when they saw that miracle that Jesus performed, when he turned water into wine, it says they believed. Then again, when we looked at the miracle of Jesus walking on the water, it says that they witnessed that miracle and they believed and went on to proclaim, you certainly are the Son of God. Now that, that title, Son of God, is one in which John repeats repeatedly in his gospel. And that phrase can mean a number of things. Anything from a, a, a title given to the promised Davidic king that would come from that lineage of David. It, it could also mean a title that was to the messianic king that they looked for, that son of God. It could also be to the one who possesses the, the divine qualities of God, just like a, a son possesses the qualities of his father. And that's what he had in mind when he talked about Abraham not being their father because they didn't demonstrate the qualities of Abraham in their faith. That's what Jesus wanted them to understand. See, the disciples believed. And even as their their understanding of who Jesus is continued to grow. Still others made similar professions of faith. Remember John the Baptist? He said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We talked about the Samaritans and how they said, truly this is the Savior of the world. The feeding of the 5,000, they said, this is the prophet. Remember, they then wanted to come and take him by force and make him king. The blind man, Jesus asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? Another title, talking about God incarnate. And he says, I believe. And he worshiped Jesus. The point is, is that Jesus met people where they were. And knowing their heart, he confronted those barriers to their belief. Some responded in pride and antagonism, while others in humble worship. Some saw Jesus as as demon-possessed or insane, while others believed that he was sent by God as the promised Messiah the Savior of the world. But even as they respond in that simple moment of faith, their understanding as we go through the Gospel of John is incomplete. And there are still more things for them to learn and understand about who Jesus is. There is this progressive revelation of Jesus' identity and and it's not complete yet. And what happens when Jesus raises Lazarus from the grave, raises their understanding to a whole new level. So let's look at that together. Turn to John chapter 11. Instead of reading the account in detail, I'm going to 
highlight some of the key points that follow this train of thought as we walk through this together. Just as a reminder, Jesus has already performed a miracle that they would have ascribed that would be be divinely uh, appointed, a divine prerogative, a sign of the Messiah when he healed the man born blind. Now Lazarus is sick. Lazarus is the brother of Martha and Mary, and we know that there's a close connection between between Jesus and, and this family. And so they send messengers to let Jesus know that Lazarus is sick and really near death. Maybe they thought if Jesus knew about Lazarus' illness and the critical nature of this, that he would do as he did with the royal official and tell them, go home, you'll be healed. That's what he said to that man, right? Remember, he said, go to your home, your son is healed. Could he not have done the same with Lazarus? Sure he could, but he didn't. Look at verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, this report from the messengers sent by Mary and Martha, this sickness, he says, is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified by it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. When, therefore, he heard that he was sick, he stayed then two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. See, everyone knew what Jesus was capable of doing. And perhaps that's why the messengers were sent to begin with. But Jesus clearly had something else in mind. And what he said was that what he has in mind was intended to to glorify God by glorifying the Son. And I want you to understand that those are inseparable. That by glorifying the Son, God is glorified. And that's what he has in mind. But as you look, you see that the disciples are not real keen on this idea of going back to Judea. Why is that? Because one of those things that we looked at just earlier when Jesus was almost stoned to death had just happened. And so that would be going into a hotbed of violence where they were looking to take the life of Jesus. And they said, this is a bad idea. Look at verse 8. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Are you going there again? Jesus explains. Look at verse 11. Then he said, and after that, or this he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples therefore said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. He'll wake up. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of a literal sleep. So then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Isn't that interesting? That you may believe. He's talking to the disciples who saw the miracle at the wedding of Cana and they believed. Who saw Jesus walk on water and they believed. But apparently, there is more for them to learn and understand about who Jesus is. So they go into to Bethany. It's really kind of like a suburb of Jerusalem, about two miles outside of Jerusalem. And as they do, somebody comes to meet them on the road. Let's look at that together. John chapter 11, verse 20. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him. But Mary still sat in the house. 
Martha therefore said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother shall rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. See, Martha knew that Lazarus would be raised from the dead, that that God would raise him up in the resurrection on the last day. She goes on to profess her belief that Jesus is God's anointed, the, the promised one who comes into the world. But I believe if you look at this account and follow her answer, that she is suggesting and that she sees God and the one sent by God as two different people. What Jesus wants Mary and everyone else to understand is that the God who has the power to resurrect the dead on the last day is the same as the promised Messiah who stands before them now. I am the resurrection and the life. And so he calls everyone together and he says, let's go to the tomb. I think this account, beginning in verse 33, in my opinion, is probably the most vivid portrayal in all the Gospels, revealing the truth of who Jesus is as fully God and fully man. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look at it together. Verse 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, Behold how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of him who was blind have kept this man also from dying? The question there, maybe he's not who he says he is. Jesus, therefore, again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you, if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you hear me always. But because of the people standing around, I said it that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came forth, bound hand and foot in wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. As you look at this account on Two occasions you see 
The scripture tells us that Jesus was deeply moved to the point of weeping. And I want you to understand that this is not just a, a sympathetic tear. This is a deeply human emotion of sorrow. Jesus wept as he saw those around him weeping. He, he hurt for them as they hurt for the, the one that they miss, that they loved. I remember very clearly the day my brother died. We had just gotten the news, and I had stepped out of the room to kind of collect myself a little bit. Had an employee of mine by the name of Pan Mandel come up, saw me in the hallway. And all she did, without saying a word, was just embrace me and weep with me. And I want you to know that that was one of the most loving, compassionate things that I experienced that day. And I believe that that's exactly what is happening at the tomb. He weeps with those who are weeping. Deeply human emotion of those whom he loved. But that's not the only time. It says that he was also moved to tears when he heard the questions being asked about him in verse 37. The doubts of the people around him. And it says again, he was moved in spirit. Both instances reveal that deeply human emotion of who Jesus was and the sorrow that he felt for those whom he loved, including those who believed in him and even those who continued to doubt. But not only do we see that deeply human side of Jesus, we definitely, definitely see that divine nature as well. Jesus had waited long enough for there to be no question about Lazarus and his death. In fact, it had been long enough for the body to begin to decompose, which is why Martha was so appalled at the thought of rolling back that stone and allowing that stench of death to be smelled by everyone around them. Jesus reminds her of the conversation that they had just had. He says, remember I asked you, do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life? Once again, I, I believe that, that Martha understood that, that God would raise Lazarus up on the last day. But Jesus will now demonstrate that he is that God. With the sound of his voice, Jesus calls forth his friend, one who believed in him. And even though he was dead, Jesus raises him to a newness of life. Can you imagine what it would have been like to see that stone rolled away and this man wrapped in cloth come out of the tomb alive? And Jesus instructs him to take those claws off of him. And there's not any record of anybody saying anything. And you know why? I believe they were silent in amazement with what they had just witnessed. Jesus had undeniably demonstrated the divine prerogative to raise someone from the dead and give them life. The God of the resurrection... And Jesus Christ are one in the same. Here's what we do know. As you go on and look at the account, those who witnessed this miracle, yet again, there was another division 
among them and it reaches its highest peak and the emotions escalate to their highest magnitude. Look at verse 45. Many, therefore, of the Jews who had come to Mary and beheld what he had done, believed in him. But some of them went away to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But a certain one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. Now this he did say, this is John's commentary, not on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he would also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. See, in this account, we really get the clearest picture of where the heart of the Pharisees is. It's completely exposed. The chief concern of the religious leaders was that the people would begin to follow Jesus and that they would lose their place and their nation. There it is. It's all about them. Our place and our nation. They saw God as the great enabler who would strengthen their position and power among the people who would approve of their righteous deeds and and affirm their place of authority. And if Jesus was unwilling to fulfill their expectation, then it left them with only one solution. Eliminate Jesus once and for all. Literally, once and for all. Caiaphas said those words. It is better for one man to die lest the whole nation perish. And then John comes in behind that and says, listen to what he said because he's prophesying on behalf of God because Jesus will die, not for this nation only, but for the whole world. And from this point on, Jesus no longer performs any more signs and wonders. He leaves that public ministry. And if you look at the book of John from that point on, you see this very intimate dialogue between Jesus and his disciples. Between now and just the days ahead before the crucifixion. It is here that Jesus will disclose all that will take place, including his death, burial, and resurrection. And it is information, even though he's communicating this to them, that they won't fully understand until they see it with their own eyes. Because even in the midst of this conversation, it was uh, Philip who asked, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough. Jesus patiently explains to them, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
is really an echo of what he had already communicated. I and the Father are one. But Jesus didn't expect them to understand the the full magnitude of who he was and what he came to do at this point. He is so patient and just walking through this with them one step at a time. And when they get confused, when all that he is saying just becomes too much for them to handle, he just he tells them, he comforts them, he says, it's okay, because I'm going to send you a helper. The promise of the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, he will teach you all things and, and bring into remembrance all that I've told you. So it's okay. That ultimately is the day when it all comes together. Because Jesus has one final miracle in store and this literally is the one that changes the world it is the miracle of his death burial and resurrection without question this is the most important miracle that jesus performs and i believe the pinnacle of what all the miracles up to this point have been pointing to and it is in fact the gospel message that we are called to proclaim, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's a miracle, according to Paul, that was witnessed by over 500 people that he says were still among them as the books of the New Testament were being written. And that's really important because they are still alive to attest that what is being said is in fact true. Luke records in Acts that that Jesus continued to perform many other signs among them for 40 days after he had risen from his grave. But all this information only solidifies, it only makes sense on that day of Pentecost. When the promise Jesus made was ultimately fulfilled. And the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples, teaching them all things and bringing into remembrance all that Jesus had said to them. That's when it makes sense. And only at that point do they put everything together. And it is with this knowledge that Peter then preaches the very first gospel message sermon to the multitude that had gathered. I'm not going to leave you hanging. We're going to look at that together. Go to Acts chapter 2. This is too good to miss. And as we do this, just keep in mind all that we've been walking through with John, what this culminating miracle and understanding of who Jesus is comes to play in this. Chapter 2, verse 14. It says, But Peter, taking his sin, now having been filled with the Holy Spirit, with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he reminds them, It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit upon mankind. And then he goes on in verse 21 and says, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. He's reminding them of what had been spoken through the prophet Joel. Then he goes on and says in verse 22, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, 
just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. You see, he is reminding them what God had promised. That he would give them that that Holy Spirit that would reveal his truth. So that everyone who calls upon the name of God will be saved. He, He reaches back to that Old Testament scripture repeated more than once. That points to the fact that when you call upon the name of God, you will be saved. He uses the... The Greek translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh, the one and only God. And then he takes that thought and he turns to Jesus. And he says, you know about Jesus. You've witnessed his miracles. And ultimately, you nailed him to the cross. But all this happened, he goes on to explain, according to the predetermined plan of God. A plan which King David spoke of as well, which God fulfilled when when Jesus died, was buried, and rose from the grave. He then quotes that Old Testament psalm that prophesies that God's anointed one would not see decay. You see that in verse 27. Nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And then he talks in verse 34 how David himself witnessed The risen Christ. Look at verse 34. He says, The Lord said to my Lord, the risen Christ, sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. He's saying, just as he did with Abraham, who also saw that day of the risen Christ, he said David saw the same and recognized who he was and the truth that had been revealed. And they go on to say, And we have witnessed The same that David and Abraham spoke of as well. And now, in verse 36, Peter proclaims a truth that I believe can only be understood by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. He says, Therefore, and this is it, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you have crucified. He carries over that very same word that he used in that Old Testament quotation for Yahweh. And he pulls it over into the context of the recognition of who Jesus is. He says, the one whom you crucified is not just the Messiah whom was sent by God. He is the Messiah who is God. That's it. With careful precision. Peter connects the name of God, Yahweh with the person of Christ to whom He gives the same name, revealing the mystery that they are one in the same. Salvation comes only to those who see that it is God on the cross taking upon Himself the punishment of their sins so that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. As Peter later proclaims, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which you must be saved. 
this is the gospel of our salvation. The miracles Jesus performed were intended to progressively reveal the truth that the Old Testament proclaimed. That Jesus Christ is God incarnate who came into the world to save sinners. Sinners like you and me. And praise God that he's, he's patient with us like we see him being so patient with the disciples and the others who came to him. He knows our heart. He knows the, the obstacles of our belief. And he it works to, to reveal those obstacles and invite us to a place of faith and trust in him. So that when we turn from our ways and trust in him, he is faithful To save those who call upon His name. Just as we see in the testimony of Scripture, our worship is the evidence of our faith. As we continue to grow like they did, and our understanding of who Jesus is and that miraculous transformation of our life so that we more closely reflect the image of His character and His attributes seen no more clearly than in the life in ministry of Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's with that that I want us to just walk right into our time of communion this morning. Because Jesus says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And I am convinced that what he has in mind is the fullness of the testimony of Scripture that we've just unpacked together. He wants us to remember that that was God on the cross taking upon the sins of the world for those like you and I who are dead in our trespasses and sins but made alive together with Christ through faith in Him. That's what we remember when we come to the table. So if the men would come forward, let me pray for our time.